1: My first question for you, sir, is who do you believe? My second question is, would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again?
2: So let me just say that we have two thoughts. You have groups that are wondering why the FBI never took the server. This has got to be the most incredible thing I've ever witnessed. I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today.
0: It's almost hard to put into words.
2: He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer.
1: Hello, and welcome to Trump Cast, the show about the man Vladimir Putin supported in our last election, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Historically important superpower meetings tend to get boiled down to a single term. Neville Chamberlain's meeting with Hitler in 1938 is synonymous with the idea of appeasement. The 1945 Roosevelt-Stalin-Churchill summit in Yalta will always have the expression sellout of Eastern Europe attached to it. So what single word might we use to explain what happened in Helsinki in 2018 when Donald Trump took Putin's side against his own government's intelligence agencies, on the question of Russian interference in the 2016 election. You can't call it Trump's surrender at Helsinki because that implies giving up on a cause or a fight. Trump has always sided with Putin and never treated Russia as an antagonist or hostile power. The term betrayal has some similar issues. Sure, Trump betrayed the interests and longstanding positions of the United States on Ukraine, Syria, human rights, and a host of other issues. But those American positions have never been Trump's positions, and you can't betray what you were never loyal to. Then I was thinking about capitulation, which gets at the way Trump just seemed to throw in the towel today. He refused to challenge Vladimir Putin in any way on any issue. It's as if he recognizes that there's no point in fighting because Putin is obviously so much tougher than he is. But I think we need an even stronger term than that, perhaps Trump's submission at Helsinki. As Isaac Chotner writes in Slate today, Trump's body language, his tone, and attitude were all uncharacteristic. Trump was accommodating, deferential, even obsequious toward the Russian president. Trump was abasing himself, almost cowering. We still don't know why Trump is submitting to Putin. What mixture of gratitude, ignorance, and active blackmail is driving his docile, imbecilic, pro-Putin comments? But watching today, it was evident who held the whip, and who wanted to avoid the lashes. Coming up on the show, I'll speak to Russia Watcher Ann Applebaum right after we do the tweets.
2: Congratulations to France, who played extraordinary soccer on winning the 2018 World Cup. Additionally, congratulations to President Putin and Russia for putting on a truly great World Cup tournament. One of the best ever. Our relationship with Russia has never been worse thanks to many years of U.S. foolishness and stupidity and now the rigged witch hunt. President Obama thought that crooked Hillary was going to win the election. So when he was informed by the FBI about Russian meddling, he said it couldn't happen. It was no big deal and did nothing about it. When I won, it became a big deal. And the rigged witch hunt by struck. Received many calls from leaders of NATO countries thanking me for helping to bring them together and to get them focused on financial obligations, both present and future. We had a truly great summit that was inaccurately covered by much of the media. NATO is now strong and rich.
1: Joining me on the line is Anne Applebaum. She's a regular guest on this show. Her most recent book is Red Famine about Ukraine. Anne also runs the ARENA program at the London School of Economics. She set up ARENA to fight disinformation, particularly online. Anne, thanks for joining me on the show.
0: Oh, thanks
1: for having me. Or I should say welcome back, because you've been here many times to talk about Donald Trump and Russia. But we've just seen something fairly extraordinary. Uh, the, The joint press conference Trump held with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, and he was repeatedly asked to in any way criticize Russians' meddling in the American election. And not only would he not criticize it, he wouldn't even acknowledge it in the wake of the most recent indictments by robert Mueller of 12 russians by name who were directly involved in it were you were you in any way surprised by that so
0: i wasn't entirely surprised i mean in in a way one is shocked but not surprised because this is the kind of language that he's used in the way that he's spoken before and look, I'm starting to think that we were looking at all this the, the wrong way around. The people, people thought, well, there's been this Mueller indictment. We've released specific names. We have all these details. You know, that should inspire Trump to criticize Putin or ask Putin or demand something of Putin. You know, maybe it had the opposite effect on Trump. Maybe it made him think, um, right. I should be really grateful to Putin. You know, look how much work they put into the campaign. You know, look how much they did for me. You know, look how much you know, look how much effort and time um, and money was spent supporting the Trump campaign. But you know, on the part of the Russians, I mean, he he may feel a genuine debt to Putin. Um, and of course, we can't exclude the possibility that he knows there are more details. There's more coming. Um, the the indictment, the most recent indictment referred to several Americans not by name, and so that perhaps implies that there are more um, more named Americans to come up in the next few weeks or months, uh, and he may have been trying to undermine the investigation um, in advance. And this is one of his tactics. If you undermine the FBI and if you undermine the press, then when the FBI or the press come out with things that are embarrassing to you, you can just dismiss them as not true, and at least a part of your supporters will go along with you. That, and That may have been the other point of his his otherwise very peculiar behavior today.
1: But let's play out that idea a little bit. So he's saying thank you to Vladimir Putin, and Vladimir Putin says, you're welcome, I appreciate it. But there is some pantomime that ordinarily goes on at these events, and surely Putin understands that Trump, as his man, needs to retain some credibility in the American political system and wouldn't mind a bit of criticism or denunciation as long as Trump doesn't intend to actually do anything about it which, of course, Putin knows he wouldn't if he said that.
0: Well, I mean, it was funny. There was even a little moment where he seemed to be encouraging that. He he actually restated the American position on Crimea, for example, on Trump's behalf, since Trump didn't do it. Trump didn't say anything about Crimea. He didn't say that it was an illegitimate occupation and so on. But Putin did. Putin said the Americans believe that it's—I'm paraphrasing— but the Americans believe that it was an illegitimate occupation— we don't believe that. We believe that we had this phony referendum, or we had this referendum, Is that it was therefore it's legitimate. In other words, he was playing Trump's role for him. Trump was not defending the American position. Trump didn't even mention the American position. And so Putin was kind of filling in the blank, <laughs> for him, presumably, to remind him of, you know, what you have to say in order to be a credible American president. And it was really a very, very strange performance on a number of grounds. And that was, in some ways, one of the stranger moments.
1: I mean, there was also that striking moment where Putin was asked if he wanted Trump to win, and he said, yes, I did. It was a, a, a br- you know brief moment of honesty. Trump, I imagine, if asked the same question, wouldn't have given that truth. If he'd been asked, did Vladimir Putin want you to win, wouldn't have uh, just simply said, yes, of course, that's true.
0: No, well, and actually, there was a statement put out by the White House a couple of days ago after the Mueller indictment. Uh, came out saying precisely that, saying that, um, you know, there's no indication that this was, that the Russian intervention had anything to do with promoting Trump, which of course, you know, is not very patently clear, um, that it is. I mean, it's clear that for Trump, I mean, first of all, there may be some deeper issues. As I said, there may be more, you know, more to come from Mueller and so on, and he needs to prepare for that. But for Trump, if nothing else, the, the Russian intervention seems to inspire some kind of insecurity in him that makes him feel that his presidency is illegitimate. Um, and it's not an accident that one of the things he started doing at this press conference where he was supposed to be talking about, I don't know, Ukraine and Syria and nuclear weapons and issues of great you know, world import, he immediately brought up his election and how he won the election and the electoral college and how you know, the Democrats normally win, but he won, and so on and so on. So in other words, he... He's so insecure about his presidency and his election that he feels the need to repeat this all the time. And I think that's the reason why he, he, he keeps denying that Putin wanted him to win, even though Putin just told us himself that he wanted to win.
1: I think you're exactly right about that. And he, he knows he's illegitimate in a sense, and he's obsessed with that asterisk. You know, he knows in the history books, he's afraid there's going to be an asterisk next to the election of 2016 that says this election was, however, stolen or it was interfered with by the Russian intelligence agencies in a way that we no longer know what the real outcome would have been. And that's driving him crazy.
0: Yeah, no, there's no question. I mean, and that explains why he keeps talking about the Electoral College. I think it even explains why he talks about how many people came to his inauguration he continues to repeat this over and over again, and I think, and goes back to it over and over again. And I think that obsession reflects his sense of his fear of illegitimacy or his fear that, you know, he, he, he cheated or he, he perceived to have cheated. And that therefore, he's not, you know, he's not a real president. he's done a little bit less recently, but he came back to it today, which was, which was interesting. And I think it was because of the context and because when standing next to Russia, um, that's clearly what he's thinking about.
1: So here you have this extraordinary spectacle of an American president siding with the Russian intelligence agencies against the judgment, public judgment, of the American intelligence agencies. And sitting right there at the press conference in the front row is John Huntsman, a moderate Republican who is the U.S. ambassador to Russia. You know, and also there, Mike Pompeo, the head of the CIA, John Bolton, national security advisor, Dan Coates, the national intelligence director. I mean, none of these people are traitors, whatever you think about them. They are are people whose careers have been shaped around defending the United States from foreign attack, including and very much by Russian and before that Soviet intelligence. What the hell are they thinking? And what the hell should (laughs) these people do?
0: It's, yeah, we, I wish I knew what they were thinking. Um, there was another person there too. I don't know if she was at the press conference, but she was at the meeting, which was Fiona Hill, who is a very brilliant Russian analyst who wrote a very, very good book about Putin, um, who has who has been working, who's been the head of Russia for the N.S.C., um, and who doesn't talk to the press at all or even you know any too many of her acquaintances. So I don't know what she's thinking now. But there, you're right. There are a lot of people. Um, who 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 must have very peculiar feelings. You know, one of the oddities to me is somebody who's written a lot about Eastern European history and occupied countries and how people behave under occupation and, you know, these very difficult and complicated questions about whether you collaborate or don't collaborate and what are the reasons to, to join the Communist Party, even though you don't believe in it, because, you know... you. You want to do something good for your country, and there are all kinds of arguments that people made and had with one another in Eastern Europe, for example, in the 1940s and 50s. And I suddenly, recently, realized that these are the same kinds of arguments and, that are going on now in the heads of Republicans in this administration. You know, do I stay? Do I go? You know, shouldn't I be there? You know, next to him to make sure he doesn't press the nuclear button, even though I know he's you know, he's dangerous. You know, what you know what should I be acting out of my sense of personal honesty, or should I be acting, you know, or is my career more important? All these kinds of questions that normally are asked by people who live in occupied countries or dictatorships are now, I think, really real in modern Washington. Um, You know, I don't know what John Huntsman does, and does he quit in anger? Does he stay because he feels like he might be able to be useful? You know, does he, does he try to contravene the president behind his back? Does he, you know, lots of people inside the White House have been flipping messages to reporters, and that seems to be a little bit less true now than it was at the beginning. But, I mean, there's a reason why this is the leakiest White House in living memory, and that's because the people who work there seem to be so horrified by things that they see that they're passing messages to the outside world. You know, look, here's what's going on. Here's what's really happening. Um, but. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, all these people have to wake up in the morning and look at themselves in the mirror um, and tell themselves that what they're doing is good. And as you say, these are not people who are traitors or, um, you know, or cheats. And at some level, they must all feel horrified and conflicted.
1: I imagine one thing they tell themselves and each other is the president doesn't speak for the United States he's off the rails saying whatever the hell he wants about about NATO about about the EU and Russia but they say well somebody's got to conduct actual policy and our policy uh continues on the same basis it always has and we just kind of ignore that i mean is that a plausible or defensible well, position
0: that, that that's been, well that's been true that's been true for a while i was actually at, a few few months ago i was at an event held by the McCain Institute there quite a few Trump administration people were there. Mattis was there, Pompeo was there, several other people, and they all spoke, and there were lots of debates on the stage about national policy and foreign policy and so on. And the most interesting thing about it was through a whole day of, you know, mostly Republicans and several administration people on the stage, almost nobody mentioned Donald Trump. And you had this feeling that, you know, here's the, you know, you know defense and security establishment going on doing what they're doing despite the president, exactly as you say. You know, the only, the problem with that, though, is that down the road, there are some big conflicts coming up. I mean, some of, our, some of our foreign policy commitments do depend on the president, and they do depend on, you know, faith and belief in, you know, in, in a unified American policy. I mean, the most obvious one is Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, which is the promise that if one member of NATO is invaded, then all the others will come to that country's aid. Right. And this is a you know, this is something that people believe, you know, on faith and they believe it because, you know, it's always been true and and because the Americans have put forces in Europe and, and so on and so on. But if you know, if the US President doesn't believe in Article five and if the US President doesn't like NATO and wants to destroy NATO, then you know, then it doesn't matter how many troops we have on the ground or how many bases we have in Italy or Germany or even Poland. You know, then, you know, why should anybody be afraid of NATO? So you know we are we, we do run into some really complicated issues. I mean, can you have a president who has a different foreign policy from the American government? it's not it's not really clear.
1: But strangely, that seems to be the situation we're in, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the the top mandarins of foreign policy do treat him like just some Yahoo with a microphone. Who will be gone, and then we'll then it will go back to a normal condition in which the president speaks for American foreign policy.
0: Yeah, because, that you know, as I said, that it's just got to, that has its limits. I right. Mean, no, it's not a desire. It's not a
1: desirable to, you know, situation.
0: But it, but he but he's doing you know he's doing all kinds of damage um, morally, you know, philosophically, intellectually to America and to American power and the perceptions of America around the world. I mean, even. For example, um, you know, his behavior in Britain a, a few days ago, you know, he showed up, he gave an interview to a really, you know, really the nastiest tabloid in Britain, the Sun. Yeah. Um, and in the interview, he, he attacked the prime minister. He supported a kind of hard Brexit group that's inside the Tory party. Um, I, you know, I won't, I won't bore you with the exact details of what that means. But, you know, anyway, a, a group of um, hardline opponents of the prime minister, he deliberately supported them. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, you can do that, but that has an impact on UK politics. I mean, you know, this is now the most unpopular American president probably ever in living memory. He's something like 11% of Britain say they like him. So that means, you know, nearly 90% don't. Um, and if that hardens into anti-Americanism on top of anti-Trumpism, if people begin to feel that this is really, you know, this is a U.S. This is U.S. policy speaking, you know, then you could get support for anti-American parties in Britain. I mean, the British Labor Party right now is led by somebody who is a, has been anti-American for 30 years. Uh, He's a former Marxist as a Jeremy Corbyn leader of the Labor Party. And I can, I can see how mood building against the United States begins to affect not just policy in Britain, but politics and internal politics. We've already seen how Trump's behavior, you know, is, is, is widely thought to have helped elect a left-wing populist in Mexico. So, you know, this there are all kinds of implications and changes that will take place around the world and inside particular countries as well as between them thanks to his behavior and his language. And you know, he's creating counter-reactions. You know, people dislike him, and that means that they dislike the United States, um, and that means they elect different kinds of people to, to run their government.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the commentary after this press conference, a, a lot of people are using words like disloyalty, treason. These are very loaded terms, particularly in the context of Russian relations. Do you think it's appropriate to be using terms like that to talk about Donald Trump? Is he a traitor to the United States?
0: My problem with the word traitor is that it's the kind of word that really gets thrown around a lot in liberal democracies, and, or liberal ex-democracies rather, (laughs) um, as a way of tarring people um, and discrediting your political opponents. There, it is a real term, and it has a legal meaning, and one would have to think a lot about whether Trump.
1: Well, it doesn't meet the legal meaning. Has, yeah, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but the, I mean, the legal definition, the Constitution, is is aiding an enemy at war, and we're not. We may, we may, Russia may be a hostile right. power, but we're not in a state of war with them.
0: Right. So, so you know, so I would kind of prefer we we didn't use that word, but I think you can ask. I think it's legitimate to ask whether. Um, he's anti american whether he's um whether he whether he supports american values whether he's working abroad on behalf of the United States or whether he's doing something on behalf of himself personally um i mean that's that that's one of the reasons why all the questions around his companies and his investments are so important because there begins to be a question as to whether the American president is uh, you know taking policy one policy or another in china depending on whether his daughter is getting you know, is getting deals with the Chinese government on her, um, you know, on her trademarks. I mean, that, that, you know, we never asked, had to ask those questions before about an American president. Um, and so yes, you do have to start asking about whether he's, he's working on behalf of the United States or himself or, or who knows who else.
1: And just as a last question, I want to ask you about what goal you think Vladimir Putin is working towards. He keeps getting these giant, unexpected gift baskets from president trump um and he's sort of he's sort of going with that. but you know is the in terms of his larger plan, is it to undermine NATO? Is it to destroy the EU? Is it to reclaim countries in Eastern Europe and former uh, Soviet republics for the Russian sphere of influence? What's the the long-range goal for him, and how well is that being served by this summit and by his interactions with Trump?
0: So, Putin's greatest fear, his biggest potential political problem, is the attraction that his countrymen feel for the West, for Western Europe in particular, um, but for democracy, um, for you know, for a less corrupt, more admirable, more honorable political system. And the times that he's become most anxious in politics are the times when he's seen ordinary Russians take to the streets or rise up. Or, you know, or, or, or protest against him. And the reason why he was so upset about the Ukrainian revolution in 2014 was that it was exactly the kind of revolution he's afraid of in Russia. You know, that ordinary people say, you know, Basta, enough, You know, no more corruption, they wave European flags, we want to be part of the West, we want to be part of the democratic world, the normal world. Um, and Russians have a tendency towards that. They feel part of the West, um, particularly those who live in the European part of Russia. But but not only, I, lots of people who were there for the football matches over the last, the soccer matches over the last few weeks have commented how you know and how relieved and happy the Russians seem to be to see some foreigners in their streets again, and how nice it was um, you know for them to feel like they were part of the world instead of you know some kind of odd cut off country. Um, But in order to discourage those feelings, what Putin really needs to do above all is to discredit the West. He needs to show that democracy is a sham, that it doesn't work, uh, that all these Western institutions are falling apart, that the EU is a catastrophe, that it's undermined by Islamic terrorism. Um, He needs to show that it's unfair, that it's corrupt, and so on. And And this is why all over, not just in the United States, but all over Europe, he has promoted um, anti Europeans or I any mean, anti European Union parties, um, extremists, both of the far right and the far left. I mean, this by the way he does in every country. There's there's just with no exception in Spain and France and Britain and in Poland and Ukraine, and he, he supports extremists. And the goal is to is to prove really it's it's about his own domestic power, it's to prove to the Russians that there isn't anything else. You know, you have There's no alternative system. We're okay. Maybe I'm corrupt, but the West is corrupt too. You know, maybe democracy is not really real here, but democracy is fake there. You think we have problems, their problems are even worse. And that's been the game all along. And of course, Trump is appealing to him because Trump is an oligarch in the sense, you know, sort of almost a Russian style oligarch in the sense that he is. He's somebody who's corrupt. He's somebody who's used money to get into politics and is now using politics to make money. Um, he's somebody who isn't loyal to his country. He's somebody who is, um, who's a fool, you know, who makes America look foolish and stupid. I mean, all of the, you know, all of that is good for Putin because it it, it promotes himself. You know, it promotes, look, look at me. I am strong. I am, you know, I am powerful. Um, and all these weak, um, pathetic Democrats and all these, all these, Countries you think you should admire are falling apart all around me. And that, I think, has been the real goal the whole time. And I think, in my view, he's been pursuing it for the last several years. And I think the election of Trump was, was kind of the, you know, capped it off.
1: I was going to say that Putin's a little like the, the dog that caught the car. I mean, this program of delegitimizing the West and Western institutions might have been expected to take decades, a generation, and, and be a matter of slow erosion of, of confidence and legitimacy. And, and instead, he got an American president who's just capitulating and giving him more than he would have dared hope for immediately.
0: Yep. I mean, I think that's exactly what's going on. And, and, and some of this is Trump. Trump instinctively hates all these people and all these institutions anyway and has always done. Or has, has been, certainly has been saying that and writing it for 20 years. So, you know, Putin, they, the Russians knew what they were doing when they invested in his businesses. They invested in him, encouraged him, sent emissaries to meet with his people during the campaign, plus whatever else they did that we don't know about.
1: I've been speaking to Anne Applebaum. Anne, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. You'd make him really happy if you followed us at Real Trumpcast. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.